You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom Abrocha. This is On Principle. I'm Avram Kivalevich, and I'm here with Rabbi Elisha Paul, who is the head of school of the Adelstone Hebrew Academy. Have I got that right in terms of the title? The head of school? Yes. Yes. That's correct. And even though uh, we are both uh, getting ready in our own ways with our families for Shavuot, and there's a lot of preparation and traveling and things that have to be done, Rabbi Paul has graciously agreed to sit down with us and continue our discussions about challenges in Jewish education. And I actually reached out to Rabbi Paul, and uh, he answered me right away, which was incredible in today's time and day and age, uh, that people actually answer their uh, email that, that you sent to them out of the blue. And the reason why I reached out to you, Rabbi Paul, as we've talked about before, was because you, uh, like many other stalwarts and, and great people, in my mind, are out doing uh, chinuch, especially as a principal, in places not not in the big northeast, what we call the out-of-town places, the out-of-town, right now, Charleston, South Carolina, but your resume includes a number of out-of-town cities, uh, many of them in the south, which of course is deep to my heart, Miami and Atlanta, um, but also including, uh, I, I believe, uh, the North, Great Northwest, uh, Seattle and Mercer yep. Island. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to call uh, um, suburban Maryland as much out of town or in Connecticut where you were as well. But I think especially those the, uh, the four places that I've mentioned, Atlanta, Miami, although most a lot of people look at Miami as a suburb of New York. But uh, Atlanta, uh, Miami and uh, Seattle and now Charleston, I think there's probably very there's probably few few educators that I could have looked into. That could really give me a, uh, give us, me, and everyone a perspective of what it means to be a principal and think about w- educating out of town students in Judaism and Torah and in, in general studies as well. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about the the challenges, the, the way you see it, and what do you see as the purpose of the the out of town education? Let's say versus uh, the, the the northeast education or the, the the big central cities education. Can you hear me? Rep? What do you see as the, the the goal in out of town education, especially knowing that it, it's that there are inherent issues in communities that are not as strong religiously, that are not as close in many ways to to what we call the spiritual heart of Judaism in America. What do you see as the goal of, of, of Jewish education and, and some of the challenges that you've had in trying to map that and make that work? Sure. It's kind of like the guy who was standing on the beach throwing the starfish back in one at a time and someone tells him, You're not, you can't throw all the starfish back in the water. So the guy says, yeah, but for this one, it helped. So it's really thinking about not quality over quantity, but individuals over mass uh, numbers. Every You have to value every Jewish person, every neshama as an olam male. And if we can get one more kid uh, off the spiritual train to Auschwitz, 
and get them onto the, uh, the, the good line going more to a Ruchni's past, which means here, simple, remaining Jewishly connected, marrying a Jew, being involved and have some type of Jewish connection when they're older with their own kids, day school. And ultimately, if we can get them to go to Israel, it would be even enough besser. That's the, the, the crown jewel of any out-of-town school is an eighth-grade trip to Israel, which I'm sorry we didn't take this year. So the goal is keeping them in the game, and not everyone can go out of town. It takes a certain personality to be able to forego some of the luxuries of having external communities that have loads of Talmidi Chachamim, loads of Shiurim, loads of Minyanim. Here you have a Minyan, a Shir, a Daf Yomi, a Jewish Mart, a single opportunity. So you have to be willing to be a bit of a Navartiker uh, and go out to where it needs to be done. And it's it's a certain idealism that you have to be a little bit, you know, Meshugaloso Dover to do. Not everyone's cut out for it. Yeah, well, as, as somebody who has taught myself, so yeah, that is a good summary. And as somebody who has uh, themselves uh, lived out of town, and, and I, I, I taught in Houston, so I understand what it is. Um, I actually made an interesting choice, was I left my family in the Northeast, and I traveled back and forth from Houston until I was sure um, things could or how they would work out. Um, how have, how, uh, you know, you've been, you have traveled around, uh, despite, you know, let's say over and above the fact that your family has to move to different places. Did you, did your children, you know, how did they deal with going to schools that weren't on the level of the schools that they were used to? Uh, like for, you know, were they, was that an issue for you? Um, it was slightly an issue. I tell you that what we lost in, you know, Gemara quotient, we made up for in Mensch quotient. You know, there's a wholesomeness of a small town like Charleston or Atlanta or Seattle that you don't have in the big city where the frumous kid can be the, you know, going through the frum motions, but the Midos may be uh, slightly less refined than someone who goes on in a, in a more genteel uh, laid back community. So we did make up on the character development, what we lost in the Talmud development, but we did lose out on some of the academic and peer she'ifus for growth. Um, I think the moving around was harder on them. You know, the day school movement was harder on them than actually being in any one given place. But uh, there were many trade-offs. Some were pluses and minuses. They would have liked more kosher restaurants, more Jewish friends, more from friends, you know, who did the same thing they did. So you try and supplement at home and on the weekends and Shabbos groups and Shabbatones and summer camps and trips to Israel and things like that. Right. So you, so you feel that, uh, and I think obviously, you know, your attitude is something that is special, but you have to sort of replicate that in the type of teachers you're going to try to hire. Because obviously, you know, one man yeah. doesn't. It takes a village, and it takes a it takes a village to to educate, and it takes a, a, a great network of, of of teachers to be able to really actualize what your vision or the vision yeah, of yeah. the school is. So you need you need good soldiers. You need good lieutenants and good soldiers who also have that sort of feeling. And I know that there's a. We, we talked about this yesterday a little bit. I mentioned the term to you: the merry-go-round of Jewish education. And, and what happens, I think, in some of the out-of-town schools is that 
many of the uh, the teachers who are not administrators, not being paid administrator salaries, who are you know cutting their their teeth on teaching, end up leaving after a short amount of time, and that's frustrating, I would assume, to the administrators yes. because we all know that you you can draw up the idea in the in the most glorious terms, but it's the teachers in the trenches who are actually uh, causing that to happen, and and when they and when they have to leave, because what were they supposed to do? And, I, and I'm wondering if that's was that something that you uh, encountered as well in your in your experience, staff fallout and, and not yeah. being able to have a continuity in terms of uh, uh, sure. for, the, for the students. And how did you address yes. that? Well, um, it is an issue. And I addressed that by identifying candidates who are likely to stay long term. And that was by building a pipeline of alumni who had connections to the community that the school was in who had family or nostalgic connections, uh, you know, Hevra. So they would be more likely to build an infrastructure to stay on longer. And even if they did stay in the community, you know, uh, five, 10 years instead of two, three years, that was a win. So we had to identify future um, who you could develop and recruit and, and grow into your school who have connections to the community itself. Those are the best teachers to have if they're alumni of the school or Bogre Yeshiva in that, in that community. That's where I felt the most connection. Yeah, you can rent a Rebbe from New York or, or Israel, but they don't have any intrinsic connection. So when things get difficult, they have, you know, go to the next place. But if someone has family or friends in the place you are, it's easier to get them to build in long-term uh, not lifetime necessarily, but long-term commitment to the community and school. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's a very obviously that's a that's the, the best way to go. And probably I'm going to speculate that even though you're not really from a, a small town, I think you told me you're from Baltimore. But it probably helps that you were in Baltimore and you weren't raised in Borough Park. <laughs> in other words, in my correct. Uh, yeah, you know, because e- even though Baltimore is sort of now definitely become almost a uh, uh, a suburb of all the New York uh, emigres who are uh, going there to get houses. Um, Baltimore, when you were growing up, was still, you know, enough of an out-of-town place that I think has probably helped you in terms of going to out-of-town places as well, right? Um, yes, I was pre-21st century Judaism before the 21st century. Um, Baltimore was like cheers, you know, you want to go somewhere where everyone knows your name. Everybody know who everyone was in Baltimore. My parents, my father was from a secular home. My mother was from a Hasidic home of survivors who became religious Zionists. So that's common now in the 21st century. Back then that was odd, but this is very comfortable to me. There's no normative kind of uh, mold out of town. Every family's unique. So yeah, it does feel a little bit like that. And by the way, I was south of the Mason-Dixon line in Maryland, even though the Southerners don't consider <laughs> me uh, anything but a Northern Yankee interloper. Um, I do understand the, the pace of life and culture a little bit more. Right. There definitely is, a, as a Southerner, things are different, and you are correct about the Midos, but that comes really as part, not so much of the Jewish mentality. You're right. It's sort of like the Southern gentility and everybody says hello. I don't know if they're saying hello in the uh, in the uh, everybody's wearing face masks or not. 
But I think they're, they're, yeah. prob- they're probably nodding in a good way, which I guess is another topic with an elephant in the room that we haven't really discussed, which is, you know, you're now in, uh, in, in Charleston. Uh, maybe things are a little bit uh, less intense than they are where we are here up in New Jersey and the Northeast. But yep. clearly there's a big question about what's going to be Jewish education or education or life in general post-corona. Um, the ideas of, of a brick and mortar building where you're shuffling school children into uh, and, and the more kids you can get into the building and into the classrooms, the better, into the gyms, the better. Those days, I don't know if they're coming back. So uh, what have you thought about? Uh, again, I, I could ask this to any educator, but especially you know where you're sitting, what do you see as the future uh, in a couple of months? All right. So I'm going to say that the challenges are the challenges for everyone, meaning money, how to do things safely. We're all going to grapple with the same things. And whether we do wear masks or check temperatures or et cetera, that's going to be something we all have to grapple with. I want to talk about the silver linings, though. We don't have school buses. That's the biggest fear right now in public schools opening up is the school buses. One kid gets sick, 50 kids have to go home. We don't have a gigantic, uh, uh, in an out-of-town school, it's different than a big school like in New York area. We have the square footage to be able to social distance more safely. And it becomes an advantage in a certain sense that we hope to capitalize on. That said, all interestingly enough, is opening up this week, opened up this last week. They're doing it the opposite. They're keeping the core classes online. But anybody who has to go to work, they can send their kids from eight till four to school, but they're going to be in like a partial online, partial in school, davening, lunch, extracurriculars. And there's going to have to be hybrid models that are developed that uh, take into account the realities of people needing to get back to work and being safe at the same time and having a place for their kids. I don't think full, this pie in the sky thing of everyone's going to be online forever, I just don't think it's going to work. And if it does happen, People are just going to go to public school or, or free options because they're not going to pay for the just the, the luxury of uh, an online uh, school with a Gemara class. Now, it could be long term. That's where we'll head. But I don't see it short term. I see people, if they're going to, schools will survive. They have to have something in a building to some degree. Safer, more social distanced, less physical contact. And, you know, uh, prudent, but I don't see people able to stay long-term home with their kids. Otherwise, that means uh, drastically changing the metrics of size and uh, economics. Hopefully, it'll depend on economics, though. If the philanthropists still have money and the parents still have the ability to pay tuition, we'll survive with a slight haircut um, similar to 2008. We'll all shrink by 5 to 10% and call it good. If things get worse and there's a second spike and there's no money and no jobs and the federations don't have uh, a pool of philanthropists that they can go to, we are going to face some challenges that are going to cause a consolidation of schools, closing of schools, and downsizing of schools. Well, it's definitely a gloomy forecast. And I have to say, from where I'm sitting here, I think the last thing that you said 
to me, <laughs> it's, it sounds like what probably will happen, and it's a very sad thing, um, you know, the consolidation. And, and, and let me just segue into something that perhaps you're going to be modeling for those consolidations, because I know from my experience in Houston, and I know the Addlestone School in Charleston, the school cannot be made out of primarily the Orthodox uh, boys and girls. You need to tap into mass. yes. You need to tap into anyone who is has a Jewish identity, and that means even people who might not even be halachically Jewish. Uh, but let's not go there. Let's talk about the fact that you need the reform, the conservative, and the unaffiliated, the people who are part of Jewish identity. And I think schools like the one I was associated with in Houston, yours in, in, in Charleston, has that makeup of everyone, of all recognizing the importance of what it means to be a Jew. Can you talk a little bit about how you've navigated that? Because if schools do become consolidated, we are going to see a lot of bleeding in the borders, and we're going to see that type of compression happen. So can you talk a little bit about the challenges that you faced in Charleston and in other places about trying to come up with curriculum and a perspective that can be uh, an umbrella that everyone could sit under? Um, I will tell you that there are schools already that have gone to tracks where you have a more Talmud intensive for the firmer kids and a more general studies intensive for the less from kids. Um, the big deep dark secret is boutiquing of Jewish schools is only a post-World War II phenomenon. If you, the Rosh Hashiva Lakewood went to day school in Lakewood with his kid, it was more like my school than the kids' school that your kids go to right now. And Baltimore and TA, there was one school for the whole community. The Reform Rabbis' kids went there, the Conservative Rabbis' kids went there, and the Orthodox went there. And we all held our nose and felt equally dissatisfied. But it was one um, big tent umbrella. Then we boutiqued. We got money, we got critical mass, and we got hubris, and we became all, uh, we wanted our own flavor. L'shem Shemayim. Now, the... The, the realities of economics may dictate that we have to learn to live together, even if not everyone has the same shitos in, you know, how much balance Jewish general, Zionism, Chinuch, Gemara, Sneas, all these things will have to be grappled with if they consolidate. And I think K-12 is, go, is already happening. It's been happening in the last five, ten years. That's been one of my big things you know, consolidate expenses. But I think now schools laterally will continue to consolidate as well because I don't think there's going to be money to support the individual uh, schools as much. New York might be insulated because you have big schools, but I'm saying I'm talking about the small schools, the ones that's all may become more normative than the boutique. And there's ways of doing it, but people have to be mature and able to compromise the Tefel without sacrificing the Ikar. Um, th- th- I would just say, uh, to come back on that, is that I also grew up in Memphis, and of course our school was the only Jewish day school there, and we had all different stripes of, of children, and many of them were very close friends of mine, and they would drive to Shul on Shabbos, then come to my house and spend yeah. the afternoon by by me. Um, we had a little bit of an issue when it came to the bat mitzvah and bar mitzvah parties, uh, whether, yeah. I would go, whether I would go to the dances or not. But I was very familiar, and we knew who the Orthodox kids were. We knew, we, we understood that. I think the difference between when I was growing up in the 60s uh, and early 70s and, 
and what we're talking about today is that in my time, reform parents, conservative parents, unaffiliated parents sort of abdicated. They didn't really have a shita in Jewish education that they wanted their kids yep. to go. They said, I want my kid to know he's Jewish. I don't care if the rabbi has a beard. It's fine. He's going to go to Christian Brothers High School anyway, which is where many of my uh, co-classmates went after eighth grade. Now, I think there's been a, 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 an influx of education, even among in, in, in the non-religious sector. And I think they're going to have an agenda of what they want. And, 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 and there's much more understanding of what a Haredish uh, mentality is and, 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 and you know, claims of, of, of not being, uh, not having enough variants, uh, of not being uh, open uh, to, uh, to LGBT and other issues. So I think that, that that's going to be a challenge, which is a lot different than what you're talking about in the 60s and 70s as well. I think there's going to be, there's going to be that friction deciding what's, what is going to be the school's hashkafa more than it was that. I don't know. How, how do you respond to that? Yeah. Welcome to my world. <laughs> The truth is, everyone has an agenda. And one mitzvah to the right, you're a Haredi fanatic. One mitzvah less to the left, you're a Kofar Gomor. And you're trying to balance that in between. I think there's a difference between compromising the core and, um, and preserving it uh, with, with welcoming those who may not be on the same page, as opposed to having a disdain for anyone who's not me. There's a great book called You Don't Have to Be Wrong for Me to Be Right. Non-from people now, if you tell them you're from, they'll say you're crazy and we're going somewhere else. You have to be able to accept people share who shum. And if you don't want to, it will never work. That doesn't mean you don't encourage children to grow but that's where the core of relationship building comes from. You don't accept someone because they're Shomri Torah Mitzvahs. You accept them because they're Jewish. And let's grow together. You on your path, my on my path. But it has to be relationship where they don't think orthodox is a dirty word trying to, you know, kidnap my kid and have them never eat in my kitchen again and not eat my cheesecake on Shavuos, Right. You have to really accept them knowing they don't do what you do, but they will be happy to do what you do when they come to your house. And they will be happy to have everyone have kosher food at the school. As long as you don't say, and you're a bad person if you don't do this at home and tell mommy she has to buy OU. See, you, Jews have to be able to res- stay within our lanes, respect those people who are not like us enough to ignore them. But if we have an agenda that we're going to missionize, we're going to lose. You can now, like the AA says, you can attract, but you can't promote. And, and that's the difference nowadays. So, so I think really, you know, what we, this discussion, I think, has, has brought to light that as much as people are saying, are we ever going to get used to the social distancing and the, the, the life of post-COVID, this is, I think, is maybe even a stronger challenge for the from Orthodox Hevra to be able to have that shift in mentality in terms of uh, uh, of acceptance without trying to proselytize, without trying to judge. That I think is going to be a, a, a quite a challenge. But I, I think you're right. I it think is. other otherwise, 
I, I really don't see, like you say, these boutique schools that have uh, these uh, billionaires that are allowing it, to, allowing them to continue. The schools are going to need the, the complete muscle and strength of the whole swath of the Jewish community, including conservative reform and not practicing. And, and that's going to and that's going to take that type of attitude. I wanted to ask you one last thing, um, Rabbi Paul. I noticed when when I was looking up on, on think places that you've been, one of the places that uh, that you were uh, associated with was Sulam, which is uh, a, a school for special ed um, that's associated with other schools, and it's about mainstreaming, I believe, um, as much as possible students with special needs. Uh, I don't know how long you were involved in that, but can you tell me how that has helped you? Your 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 work with Sulam as a special as as, as administrator of a special ed school. How has that helped you now, uh, in where you're operating in Charleston? Or it's the same thing we just said. Um, you have to learn. Look, every educator would love to have a school made up of students who don't need them. The Eluium don't need us. They can learn on their own. They're autodidactic. They really could be fine and gegesund, and and they don't need us. We need to have a school for the community that exists, not this school for the community that we would like to exist. It is not yeshiva wobegun where everyone is above average. You know the bad joke, the definition of a gifted kid? Go ahead. (laughs) I'm not familiar. It's an average kid with Jewish parents. So... um, (laughs) The truth is, everyone's at risk of not meeting their potential. Everyone's gifted in some way. We put them in this mold. And the truth is, there is no mold. There's the core basis that we want everyone to have Jewish cultural literacy and, and good feeling about growth as a Jew. And then you've got to meet everyone where they are. One size really does not fit all. It fits one. And if you can meet every kid where they are to some flexible way, like a special needs family, and try and, um, I would call, weaken the social Darwinism that has infected the Jewish community, that we are specialer than you because I'm smarter, brighter, better yichus, better money, better, better, right? I'm more right than you. No, that, that's, that's not the attitude. A special needs kid will tell you, they learn a let me tell you i'll end with a story i put my career on the line coming here by admitting the child of a professor who is on the autistic spectrum into the school against the uh wishes of everyone and i did it because it's the right thing i learned that being in charge of a special needs school and if you're not willing to the right to do the right thing get out of the business and go sell insurance or do something else but if you're not going to do the right thing for kids you don't deserve to be sitting in the seat of a school headship right it's not a popularity contest it's a doing the right thing contest this kid could not read hebrew but he could speak hebrew his parents are israeli but he couldn't read hebrew he sat in with the tzaddikis who taught fourth grade into her class the whole year sitting doing nothing and she would give out the little papers with the, the pasuk, and the kids would read and, and skip him. Lo and behold, after a break for Sukkis, he comes back in. She gives out the sheets. He got one too. And she's about to skip him, and he mumbles something. And she says, what'd you say? And he mumbles it again. He says, would you like to try and read it? And he nods, yes. 
he reads haltingly and slowingly, not perfectly, a Hebrew phrase for the first time in his life. He had been in public school till then. First time in his life, he reads a pasuk. The rest of the class spontaneously stood up and gave this kid a standing ovation for one solid minute. That's all I need. Because this kid, this kid is my Olam Haba. And that's where we began with. These kids are Olam Haba, the non-from kid, as well as the from kid, the special needs kid, as well as the Elisha kid. And if you really look at that, every kid's potential, it helps the regular kids. It helps the from families. It develops them into those non-hubristic kind of people. And really, everyone can learn from everyone. And that's kind of what I took from being involved with a special needs school and I have my own special needs child. And then you put all the resources in the garden in the first grade. So you can, you can screen the early intervention needs as opposed to only having the eighth grade Gamar Rebbe being the superstar. You have to have the first grade Olive Bay's Rebbe and Mora also superstars. And with that, I think is the attitude you need moving forward, wherever you're going to be out of town, out of the box, out of the norm, the world that we had BC before Corona is not the world we're going to face AC and we all better be able to embrace it and um, flex well, and pivot. Well, just to end with the, with, with the famous Chazal that says that even though we were coming to our Sinai, there was still a yep. Malach who gave an individual Kesser for every Neshama that was there at our Sinai. So everybody yep. has their Kabbalah Satayra, their own individual way. And ultimately, that's where growth and chinuch is. We all know that boxing people in a classroom and expecting them to resist all the social pressure and still absorb the information is 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 a is a uh, bro. I know it's broken, but it's definitely not, not the best way. Um, and you're right. Maybe the models that you are developing out of town and other heroes who are really out there. Uh, in the places where it's hard, harder to live, harder to get all the Jewish amenities. Maybe you're going to be setting for us uh, the recipe for the future. So thank you, Rabbi Paul, for spending time with us today at Guten Yontif. And maybe I had such a good time talking to you. Maybe we can uh, get you back uh, for another on-principle. I, I love love talking, and you're all welcome to come for Shabbos to Charleston. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.